0: Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America.
1: And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age.
0: We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas.
1: In a few minutes, we'll hear from Jack Harrington. He's the Vice President for Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon. We talked about the role that the private sector can play in helping the government improve its own security, DOD's cyber strategy, and solutions to bridge the talent gap in this field.
0: But first, we're joined by Razi Howe. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at RSA, the leading computer and network security company. Before she came to RSA, she was the Chief Strategy Officer at Endgame and Managing Director of Paladin Capital Group, a private 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 equity fund that invests in a national security sector. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So you have a very interesting perspective uh, coming from your background in working at now a large established company, but also at an investment firm, but also at a fast paced growth stage company. So talk to us about the difference, not just how the companies operate internally, but how they look at the marketplace itself, how they look at the problem of cybersecurity.
2: So it's three very different lenses from which you look at the market and figure out how you can contribute to the mission and to the problem and really solve it. Um, Fundamentally, we all know that this industry is in basically systemic failure, right? $25 billion a year being spent on defense, and yet the headlines aren't stopping. There's a million pieces of malware being released every day, thousands of breaches, millions, hundreds of millions of records being stolen. Um, As an investor, what you're really looking at is looking out five years, what are going to be the trends? What are the um, products that are really going to solve the problem? And so you're really trying to predict the future and bet on the teams that can execute against um, against that problem, it's very it's much more transactional. You take a very much of a portfolio approach to the problem, and you make multiple bets um, and hope that they all work out and really bet on the right teams and the right management teams.
0: What's what's a target success rate? You know, you, you say portfolio right? within this space. What what percentage of the bets pan out?
2: So <laughs> that's going to be. I think in 10 years, we're going to have a really interesting time studying those statistics. There's somewhere between 1,200 to 1,600 cybersecurity companies. 90% of them have revenues less than $20 million. They won't all survive. You have a lot of... companies that really are features that are gonna fade over the near term you have product companies that are either gonna have to grow up to be platforms or get acquired and then I think the platform companies are actually the ones that are gonna win now to be a platform company doesn't mean you start as a platform company you take a company like Palo Alto Networks which really solved the problem they were the next generation firewall and really did a great job solving that problem and then started Going into adjacent markets with their customer base, they've done a great job of doing that. So companies can evolve to becoming a a a, a platform. But I think there's going to be a lot of company. There's going to be a bloodbath in the cybersecurity market over the next eighteen months. I think a lot of companies are going to either go out of business or get acquired. So
0: you're giving, I want to just want to interrupt. You're giving Sarah all sorts of quotable <laughs> quotes. There's going to be a bloodbath. and I'm like she's sitting there no, taking my notes. my ears are awful. just yes.
1: Um, so in the security market, though, I mean, what is something that's working and what's not, what are these trends that you are looking at that you, what are the bets that you're personally willing to place?
2: Well, so f- first of all, I think RSA is really well positioned because we have a very holistic approach um, to the market. But let let me take my RSA hat off for a second. I think um, as you look at this problem, there's very interesting areas and, and important problems we have to solve. So uh, network analytics, endpoint analytics, behavioral analytics is actually an incredibly important part. If you look at how breaches are happening, people are still the biggest problem mm-hmm. um, in the network and, and they are your new perimeter, right? It's people in their Devices, so solving the behavioral analytic problems um, uh, is going to be very important. How you uh, cloud security is another big problem we're going to have to address. Now, the biggest issue here is really in in our industry we don't have standards and we don't have interoperability. And the problem you're finding is you can have all of your defenses deployed properly, right? And the average company has somewhere between thirty to sixty. Um, security products deployed, that's kind of a Swiss cheese defense when none Mm -hmm. of it talks to each other. And what we're finding is even when the products work exactly the way they're supposed to work, the adversary is still getting through. So that's where the systemic failure comes in and the approach to security has to change. Um, We really have to understand better how the adversary works. We need to know what the newest tactics and techniques that they're using and the tools that they're using are and really have that approach as we go uh, after the market.
1: And so tell us more about this coming bloodbath. I mean, is this something where, you know, with all this investment in this space, do you think that investors are in some cases steering cybersecurity companies in the wrong direction? What's going on here?
2: So uh, uh, a report came out recently that called it a game of clones, and I think that's absolutely <laughs> right. It's not that investors aren't investing in the right markets. They're investing in the right markets. The problem is after the first company gets funded, suddenly Fifteen other companies in the exact same space get funded, and so they're all saying the same things, they're all doing the same things, and it's really hard to distinguish one from the other. And that's how you you have a lot of um, investors who've come into the cybersecurity market over the last few years who aren't sophisticated with respect to security, who don't have a background in security, and and have a hard time distinguishing between companies that whose products are really working and ones who are not. So the the market spaces that are being created are the right ones. These nascent markets that are going growing really fast as we move from sort of a prevention focus to a detection and analysis focus in the security market. But too many companies are getting funded. And this is the whole issue. Again, somewhere between, depending on who's in numbers you believe, 12 to 1600 cybersecurity companies, again, 90% have revenues less than 20 million. They won't all survive. A lot of them um, will go out of business or get acquired at fire sale prices. Even at RSA right now, our deal flow is ticking up. Um, I think the security investors will continue investing, but their requirements are changing already. So they want to see products that are actually working. They're less willing today to fund just an idea. Uh, they want to know that the pro- product's working, that it's deployed, it's doing what it's supposed to do, that there's real revenues in their scale. Valuations are changing for a while. Um, the valuations, even in the security market, were tracking as though it was a um, social media company that could grow at that rate. Um, And I think those valuations are are coming back. Um, And the problem you're having, uh, to go back, Peter, to your question, is the exits, right? The exits really aren't there. So last year, we had three IPOs. We haven't had a tech IPO yet this year. Um, SecureWorks might be the first tech IPO to go out, which would be great. I think um, Mike Cody is an amazing CEO. Um, But the IPO market isn't really an exit path for cybersecurity companies, and the multiples at which m and have been happening over the last couple of years aren't sustainable. So you had uh, average multiples going up to 13 times trailing revenue. That's already starting to scale back. Um, and so you're going to see fewer companies getting acquired. The multiples are going to be lower. The companies that raise money at very high valuations are going to have a hard time returning money to those investors.
0: And what is the moment at which this realization happens? Is it just simply kind of tracking the MA side? Like when does the market come to this you know, kind of realization that bloodbath is taking place?
2: I think the market's already come to that realization. I think with what happened with the stock market last year, um, you're really seeing a change. Um, the The early stage, the seed money, has very much um, slowed down overall in the venture market because of what happened in the in the in the public markets. Venture investing in the first quarter of 2016 is down, um, and the cybersecurity more than others. So I think the realization has already hit that uh, that over enthusiasm um, for cyber was sort of really over-enthusiasm mm-hmm. for cyber. Um, the great companies, by the way, this isn't all bad news. The great companies are going to survive and they're going to do great. Um, they're going to rise above the noise and um, and they will continue to grow. And you're just going to, this Me Too funding that's, that had been happening over the last 24 months is, is what's going to stop as investors see that the exits just aren't there to back it up. I think, you know, I did this quick math in my head. If you have about, let's say, 1,400 cybersecurity companies, you have, let's be generous, 10 IPOs a year, and let's say somewhere around 70 M&A transactions in cyber. If no new cybersecurity companies um, were funded, it would take 13 years for these companies all to get to an exit. There's 13 years of market overhang Hmm. um, right now. So, it's the, the dynamics aren't great for everyone, um, but again, I really do believe that the cream will rise to the top. There will be some amazingly successful cyber companies and the security investors will continue investing.
1: So I guess building off of that optimism there, I mean, what developments on the technical side excite you most? What are the tools or techniques that you see network security defenders using, say, three or five years out in the future that
2: most aren't now? So again, I think um, it it really comes down to to understanding the human behavior. And and the companies that are really doing hard work in understanding behavioral patterns are the ones that are gonna stand out um, and and deliver amazing functionality. So user behavior, machine behavior is really important. And one of the things that, that, that has become critical in cybersecurity, if you're gonna be effective, is that marriage of data science with security research. And this is the importance of new disciplines coming into the field to solving the problem. True data science. Um, True data scientists don't typically come to the table with security background, which is just fine. We just need them to be quant jocks and really understand how to build the algorithms. But married with security researchers, they can develop the algorithms that really can start understanding what's going on in 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 the network and without signatures.
0: Do you think, can I interrupt you? Do you think companies realize that because so many of the companies are actually founded and, frankly, still led by people with that hacker background?
2: I think more and more companies are realizing it. The biggest issue is data science is a very new discipline. There just aren't that many real data scientists out there. So there are a few companies that are very focused on building real data science teams and real security research teams and marrying those together um, to solve the problems. And anyone who's focused in the analytics space is going to have to do that. By the way, the other piece of this is this is social scientists and Um, Graphic designers and and user interface designers are going to also play a more important role because, you know, when we look at the cyber industry, there's 0% unemployment, right? There aren't enough people in the industry. So it's not about bringing more people to the problem. It's about taking the analysts you have and making them more productive. And the way you do that is by making their job easier, by giving them faster access to insights. And that's where social scientists come in, right? Uh, Pulling out the... Best insights from the data you have. And then the graphic artists who create the user interfaces that really enable you to get to those insights quickly and intuitively. So I think we're going to have a whole bunch of new disciplines coming to the table. I think we have to have a whole bunch of new disciplines coming to the table. In this industry, while historically it's been a small group of Folks who came out of a, you know, a few companies that are very storied, um, those people are going to play an incredibly important role because they understand um, the security research aspect of it. A whole new set of disciplines has to come to the table for us to solve the problem. So, as you're talking about bringing in more and more people from different backgrounds into
1: the field, do you think how much do you think that the stereotypes of hackers or cybersecurity pros play into these recruitment efforts? And do you think that it's you know deterring some types of you know, so people who have different backgrounds, or how does this play into even gender issues and recruiting women to the field?
2: So that's an incredibly important question, and I do think it's um, it's actually one of the things that the industry has to overcome, because that image of the, uh, you know, the hacker in a hoodie, the tattooed hacker in a hoodie, who's a misanthrope, um, uh, is not one that is exciting to a whole bunch of people, right, especially women. So Melo as we is not wearing a hoodie in this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have hoodies, just to be clear, I, I just have a slightly broader war- wardrobe than just hoodies. But, um, but it's not exciting. So if we think about getting you start with getting girls interested in STEM, getting girls interested in technology, getting women interested in coming into this field. The whole image needs to change. And frankly, I don't think it really represents the industry anymore. Um, there was a recent article done on uh, uh, Flashpoint, a company that does a lot of security research. And there on the cover was one of the women who works at Flashpoint and does the security research. I think she very much represents what this industry is starting to look like more and more. So if we want to encourage people from different disciplines to come in, we do have to be cognizant of the image that we're portraying every company as they look at their websites and they look at the images that are on their website what are they showing are they showing the hacker the hoodie the dark side are they talking about this dynamic mission where you have this polymorphic and sentient adversary who's trying to bring us down and we need to defeat this adversary and we all have to work together to do it and it's going to take social scientists and data scientists and behavioral scientists and political scientists and you know graphic designers together with computer scientists and researchers and the white hat hackers to succeed. So I do think we need to change the image of, you know, the emblematic image of this industry in order to get people more excited about joining the mission.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're leading strategy at a major company, but let's imagine we made you queen for the day on the governmental side. When it comes to cybersecurity strategy, what would you like to see change within the executive branch approach, and then what are the kind of legislative actions that you think are needed?
2: So I think actually the one of the biggest issues the government has, and one of the biggest issues the industry has is, it's a talent issue. The government has to figure out um, how to recruit and retain amazing talent to come into the mission. Conversely, it's also got to come up with a way for the folks who are performing that mission to go back out into industry. So folks who are in the intelligence community working in the pointy end of the spear and really running the cyber mission operations, they need to go out and do defense as well. And they need to go into industry and teach industry what the latest tools and techniques and tactics are to defeat the adversary. So I do think that talent imbalance is actually one we have to um, address. I always get a little bit leery when we talk about legislative action um, in terms of helping this whole atmosphere, because it's a very complex problem. Um, And I'm not sure that the debate right now is um, cognizant of how complex it is. We sort of get hung up with issues of privacy versus security and et cetera. Um, I think the industry actually has to reinvent itself and I think it has to figure out what it's doing um, and how to protect itself and how to reimagine security um, without the government coming in from a legislative perspective and, um, and imposing some, uh, some framework that as soon as it's enacted is going to be out of date. And that's my biggest concern with, with the legislative process. I think where we have to be really careful is as we look at a world of, um, you know, technology innovation happens at a very fast pace. Um, our regulatory and policy frameworks lag it by a lot.
0: Yeah, it moves at glacial.
2: Exactly. (laughs) And even social norms lag it, right? I mean, trying to really figure out how to deal with um, new technologies as they come out. But we're we're sort of coming into this new world order where, uh, you know, you're talking about automated drones delivering your uh, your products and you're talking about self-driving cars well, how does security fit into that framework? How do we keep people safe? And are we really having the conversations conversations we need to have at the depth that we need to have them at the policy level to understand the implications of of technology and really be forward-thinking as we think about the regulatory policies that need to be put in place? I don't have any of the answers. I know the problem is incredibly complex, and we need to have technologists, we need to have entrepreneurs, we need to have... Um, you know, thinkers and doers at the table coming and really thinking about this problem from a holistic perspective. And hopefully those conversations are happening. Mm So I do want to back up to some of these questions about recruitment and
1: diversity and maybe on a more personal level. Right now, women make up only some 10 percent of cybersecurity personnel. So have you felt that gender imbalance affect you in your career? And I know that a lot of our listeners, both men and women, would be curious for your thoughts about how they could make a difference in the space in their own companies.
2: Um, so I, I uh, have a little bit of a different perspective. I, you're absolutely right about the percentage. It's 10% uh, gender diversity, and it's about 1% racial diversity. So the numbers in InfoSec are absolutely atrocious, and there's a lot we have to do to to change it. And I'll get back to that for a second. For me personally, um, so the analogy I use is I love skiing, and I love skiing in the trees. It's my favorite activity. I'm one with nature when I'm doing it. When you go tree skiing your skis go where your eyes focus. So if you focus on the obstacles, if you focus on the trees and the rocks, you're going to end up wrapped around one. But if you focus on the path, you're going to make it through. So my life philosophy is to stay focused on the path. And I don't, you know, everybody has obstacles that they face in their life, whether it's gender, it's race, it's their backgrounds, their family, it's their, you know, um, their economic status, everyone has obstacles that they've had to overcome to get to where they are. And so I just stay focused on the, path, and I don't really um, spend a lot of time thinking about the obstacles along the way. Now, in um, technology broadly, and in InfoSec specifically, there are a lot of things we can do to um, promote a culture that embraces diversity. The reason diversity is important, by the way, it's not just a social good, right? Every study shows that you will have better top-line performance, you will have better bottom-line performance, you will have more innovation if you have diversity at the table. And it's not just gender diversity, it's having diversity of backgrounds, diversity of experiences at the table. So it's no longer about, hey, like society would be better off if we were diverse. You will actually perform better, your company will do better if you're diverse. So you need to just from a um, fiduciary perspective, Mm -hmm. diversity ought to be a goal. There's a lot we can do. We talked about the emblematic image of the hacker hoodie, which turns off a whole bunch of people to this industry. Beyond that, um, what are we doing every day to to mentor folks? And that's something I I take very personally. One of the issues women have in the workplace is not having enough mentors. So um, actually actively taking a role and trying to Um, not be a role model, but actually talk to women about, you know, how they're doing, how they're performing at their job, what their issues are and helping them overcome just the daily obstacles of life, not even from a gender perspective becomes really important from a recruiting perspective, um, I believe it's really important to fill the pipeline, to make sure you're interviewing outside candidates, to make sure that you have diversity requirements for the interview. You should always hire the best person. But if you can fill the pipeline with diverse candidates and have requirements for the pipeline to be filled, you will actually come across amazingly high-qualified diverse candidates who can who can fill the role. And then as you think about your company and the culture that you're building, is it really open? to people who have very different perspectives, very different backgrounds, or are you picking for cultural fit very narrowly defined? Um, so really making sure that your co- company is open to having people from different backgrounds becomes very important. It's it's a huge problem um, and, uh, I know we'll overcome it over time. Um, There's enough people committed to it. I think it would be great if companies started publicly publishing their diversity statistics so Mm. we can start tracking it better and really make it a known goal, both internally and externally, that this is where we want to get to. Again, from a performance perspective, it matters as much as anything else.
0: So we like to end every conversation with a simple but very illustrative question, and it is, what is your favorite pop culture depiction of cybersecurity? And favorite can be defined as you love it or you love to hate it. And it can be in movies, TV, film, uh, books, whatever.
2: Um, So I always answer the question I want to answer, so I hope you don't mind. I love that question. And I actually, I know you've asked of your guests before, and I was thinking about it. There's three... um, Depictions that I love that actually made a, it had a big impact on me, starting from when I was in high school. It starts with War Games in 1982, which was just a fantastic movie, and I think very um, depicted the the high school hacker in a very realistic way, um, and sort of taught us about backdoors. Then about a decade later, you had Sneakers, which was the movie that got everyone interested in hacking, right? You learned about ethical hackers and, you know, pen testing and all that. And it was, and both were very accurate um, depictions of it. And today, Mr. Robot, to me, is fascinating. In 20 years, I haven't seen a single sort of pop fiction depiction of uh, sort of the cyber uh, hacker that was in any way accurate, and Mr. Robot for the first time really captures it, and it's technically correct, which is amazing, right? They talk about rootkits and Raspberry Pi and, and uh, DDoS attacks, and they're actually talking about it the right way. Um, it goes, you know, against what we talked about earlier, which is the emblematic image of the
0: he does have a the, hoodie, yeah,
2: <laughs> the misanthropic, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, gray hat hacker, but it, it is. Um, It's a very interesting program. So those three for me over time have been very interesting moment in time captures, accurate sort of depictions of, um, uh, of a piece of the industry. Great. And all of our podcast listeners can also check out our last
1: episode with Walter Parks who wrote both Sneakers and War Games. So I'm glad that you are following that up with
0: this. You were helping us promo. So yeah. thank you <laughs> again <to> <laughs> for, for joining us. And up next, we have Jack Harrington.
1: He's the Vice President for Cybersecurity and Special Missions at Raytheon.
0: Thanks for joining us, Chuck.
3: Oh, Peter, thank you for having me.
0: So we've heard lots of talk about how government needs to aid private business with cybersecurity via things like info sharing and the like. But what's the role of the private sector in aiding government? What is the marketplace for government services cybersecurity look like?
3: Well, clearly, with eighty-five percent of the assets that are on the internet in the hands of private sector and private citizens, it's an important partnership, and the government can't solve the whole problem. So that's why information sharing is such an important aspect. All about sharing intelligence, just as you would in a neighborhood watch program. Look out for each other. Share those threat intel, uh, you know, kind of things and signatures, and as well as behaviors that are out there. So important. So. Uh, we see it as something where we, Raytheon, have typically been in the government aerospace and defense business as well as protecting global uh, customers around the world for defense needs, whether it be missile defense, you know, et cetera. Uh, But in this cyber domain, it's our duty, if we're going to make the world a safer place, to go out into the commercial world. So we're serving, you'll see with our WebSense acquisition now, commercial software products uh, into banks, into the energy sector, into uh, government agencies as well. And now we have managed security services. We're going out helping that talent shortfall and serving private industry uh, as well as government customers around the world.
1: So going back to the government issue here for a second, Raytheon was recently awarded a $1 billion contract to help protect the federal government cybersecurity in the wake of the Office of Personnel Management breach. So how is that going?
3: Well, we were awarded the contract in September, and as you probably see across the board in today's environment, there are a lot of protests. So there was a protest uh, that has been dismissed, and DHS is going through their corrective action. And so more to come on that, but we're thrilled that DHS selected Raytheon as uh, their provider for that contract going forward, and we look forward to partnering with them in the future to protect the whole .gov. That's really what this contract is about. If you think about the amount of money that's gone into dod the amount of money that the commercial sector especially finance retail energy has spent kind of in these in these areas out in front many federal agencies have been underserved uh, in terms of solutions and so that's where dhs is coming in to help protect that so
0: in specific what are some of the things that raytheon would be doing at dhs
3: Uh, helping to build new technologies and solutions that would go out uh, and be used by uh, the DHS and the other federal agencies, they use a U.S. cert, computer, uh, as you know, emergency response teams that go out to respond. The technologies and tools that they use to do both incident response and, and remediation. We'd be building all the next generation, basically, technologies for intrusion protection, intrusion detection, information sharing, you know, really focused data analytics big area that DHS is looking at uh, investing in over the next, you know, five to 10 years. So,
1: And so this is obviously, you know, a large, large contract. And do you think that this shows how seriously the U.S. government is taking cybersecurity post-OPM? Do you think this is a shift after that breach?
3: No, this has been in the works for quite some time uh, in terms of acquisition strategies, the DoD, everyone. Obviously, with every attack and threat that comes out and and the kind of breach the size of OPM, there's additional focus put on it by Congress. There's additional focus put on it by the president and the administration and all of the agencies responsible for protecting uh, all of us. And so uh, it's not really a shift. I think that what we will learn from each of these breaches is, you know, specific Uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures of the threat or the evolution of the threat actors and where they're going and what they're doing. Uh, And then obviously look for uh, companies like Raytheon that come in and help innovate and provide solutions in partnership with agencies like DHS to solve it.
1: So what do you think about the president's national action plan to improve the government's cybersecurity? Anything in particular jump out at you as something that you think is a good step in the right direction?
3: Well, obviously, the Internet of Things and all around ICS and SCADA systems is an important area. So I know you know that was a commission that the the NSTAC came out with and provided a report to the president on the Internet of Things. And and actually, many across all of industry, as you, you probably know, get involved in, in the NSTAC, which is basically the National Security Advisory Team to the president. Uh, and they'll take on special topics. And so, um, I think that's an important aspect and something that's been underserved as well. You look at how we've protected our IT uh, enterprise networks across critical infrastructure protection, but the, the systems, the, the, the control industrial control systems, the SCADA, the energy, the power, the HVAC, still a big threat vector coming in. And so the president's now commissioned looking at what do we do to protect uh, those areas. And then obviously information What's the role share. of a company like Raytheon when it comes to that? Uh, Well, obviously, we've been working, you know, in high-end engineering for a long time around weapon systems, and many of our weapon systems, they have UPS, they have power, they have HVAC, they have both the Internet connectivity. Uh, These kinds of uh, systems are in there. So we'll be looking hard and working with the DOD for cyber hardening initiatives. We've invested over $50 million in a cyber range in Dulles and welcome to come out and uh, visit sometime. We have an anechoic chamber where we can bring in different radar systems or other kinds of emitters, wireless, and look at all the, how you would get different spectrums there. So I think- Can can I I interrupt you there? Absolutely. The the
0: range, who's using it? Uh, Besides Sarah and I coming out to visit it, uh, who's actually using it? Walk us through sort of the utility of it. And and also, is it just being used by DoD? Or is it a wider set of customers?
3: No, it's a wider set of customers. Uh, Today, we're using it mostly for uh, our government, US government customers, because they have the biggest need in in these areas where we are there. We've also built a global... Uh, Cybersecurity Solutions Center in that same building, where we can have a, think of it as a security operations center, a SOC, typically in cyber terms, uh, where we can bring in every product and technology from across the board and in industry. New innovations coming in, show customers how it will operate under attack. Right, so we have a big stimulation engine that we can uh, throw in there. So there, we're doing that for international customers, uh, primarily. So it's a mix. Of all of those, we can bring in commercial uh, large corporations, and we have many of those where we're, we're showing them how some of the capabilities we have can, can help them.
1: So are you seeing more um, blending of the interests of companies and the federal government and the military when it comes to cyber threats now? I mean, it seems like the threats that people are facing are just increasingly sophisticated. Do they need a defense-grade or mindset solution to this?
3: So I can tell you... Um, that when we meet with commercial customers, especially uh, large-scale global organizations, think financial industry that's really dealt with this for a long time, uh, they they really love working with a company like Raytheon because they say, you get it, you've been at this for a long time, not only in helping your customers, but protecting yourselves. I mean, as part of the uh, aerospace industrial base, we obviously – Uh, have seen this threat for a long time and have done a great job in protecting ourselves than our customers. So that defense-grade approach, we've seen a lot of resonation with that. And so you'll see with Forcepoint, our new joint venture for commercial software products, powered by Raytheon. Now, that was because it really resonated with the global commercial industries that we were talking to, uh, that they wanted to see the kinds of technology transfer that we can take from our government customers that we're doing that, you know, get it through export and deliver it to the commercial market.
0: So you use the term defense grade and moving into the private sector side. What are best practices that you see in your sector that you wish, if you're looking at it from a broader landscape, were implemented more widely? What are best practices that other companies in other areas can learn from defense grade, as you put it?
3: Well, so um, one of the things that Jeff Brown, our uh, CISO, really stresses is metrics and measurement and not having too many. And so one of the things that we really focus on is dwell time. So would you rather have 100 people on your network for a minute or one bad actor on your network for a year? So measuring dwell time from the time that you actually detect that a bad actor is there to the time that you cut off their outgoing command and control, their communications, their ability to act, their ability to either steal information from you, uh, do damage to your network, or whatever their specific goal may be in mind, is an important metric that we found to be tremendous. And then when you start to innovate or bring solutions, is it driving dwell time down? And if you focus on that metric and tie everything to it, we see that as a best practice from from learning how we Uh, defend ourselves, and then how we've defend our our defense customers, our Intel customers, and and the rest that are out there, and we've been bringing that to the commercial market, which brings to mind the the latest acquisition, Foreground Security. You may have read about them. They have some really advanced network hunting as a service, so not your blocking and tackling managed security service offering, but put some uh, automated analytics onto the network, correlate with the data that's being collected across your security ecosystem, whatever the products you have from a variety of vendors, correlate that in user behavioral analytics and find advanced indicators of compromise. When we've put this on people's networks, we discover bad actors that have been there for a long time that none of the products, because it's all a big correlation engine that comes in. And so that those are some of the best practices that we've seen the big data analytics, uh, kind of bringing that out to the commercial space.
1: So you mentioned uh, some of the tips from your chief information security officer, and that's, of course, a big part of the government's plan just to get one inside the federal government. So do you think that that role can make a difference in a structure like the federal government? And what role do you expect them to take on in that situation?
3: So obviously, having people focused on it and having the responsibility is one piece and, and important. But are they empowered to actually make change? And I think that's been one of the challenges within the government, even uh, when you look at the Department of Homeland Security and their charter for the .gov. You know, where, where is it that I'm providing the solutions and giving it to the other agencies and who's responsible for implementing it and making it happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the advantages to a corporation like Raytheon, where our CEO many years ago f- retired, Bill Swanson, and now our current CEO, Tom Kennedy, are so committed to the cyber threat and understand it so well, that they've really structured things for our CISO, Jeff Brown, to be empowered to make the changes necessary, whether it be directory services of password control to you know what kinds of devices you can plug into the network or not. He really can control that very, very well within the environment. And so I think the for a CISO at the gover- U.S. government level to be able to be as successful and to be held accountable, that empowerment has to come with it. And it's a challenge in the any organization the size of the U.S. government, right? I mean, that, that's gonna be the challenge.
0: One of the other uh, strategies that came out uh, around the same period as the White House one is the Pentagon has a new cybersecurity strategy. What do you see the role of private companies like Raytheon within that strategy? Another way of putting it is when it comes to cybersecurity uh, in terms of national defense, where does the military role And and private companies begin? Where's that border between them?
3: Well, I think first and foremost for Raytheon and what we've done across our markets is to be able to show the customer the art of the possible, right? So we want our men and women in uniform that are protecting us every day, the DOD and the Pentagon, to have an advantage when they're out there, you know, and defending us. And that's true whether it's kinetic warfare or whether it's cyber warfare or cyber you know, capabilities integrated in. So if you think about uh, a young man or woman going into the military, they don't know how to operate an M16, right? But they come out of boot camp and they know how to assemble it even when they're taking enemy fire. Our job we see as an industry partner with DOD is to build those kinds of cyber capabilities or cyber weapons so that a young 25-year-old can come out and be able to operate it the same way they can operate an M16 and either shut down the power or take a, you know, a network effect to to, to cut down the enemy ability to communicate whether it's command and control or sensors or, or weapons uh, and be able to leverage that. So I think that's really where we've been investing a lot of money in how we can go to a kinetic and non-kinetic effects, if you will, blending how we can harden the US military's DOD systems, which you know are vulnerable, unfortunately, to this advanced threat as we go on. Some of our systems have been out there 25, 30 years, right? And so how do you now harden those across the board? So I think it's really about helping solve those hard problems and showing them the art of the possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Now use the example of that young soldier joining the military, but you know, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the human talent gap. Um, I know Raytheon has a number of programs to recruit kids into cybersecurity, you know, everything from capture the flags to training academies. I'm interested in what does this next generation of cyber defenders look like? How will they be trained different perhaps than today? How do they think different than perhaps how you or I came at the problem set?
3: Well, absolutely, innovation's gonna go quickly in that area. Um... You know, cyber training today, I think, is not a big market and not a um, well-defined capability, right? So you can have everything from online programs, and we have uh, one of the acquisitions I mentioned, Foreground University, uh, Foreground Security. They created what they called Foreground University. They have 98 online. Uh, training programs all around operating a security operations center. What are the tools and technologies, tactics, techniques, procedures, standard operating procedures, and they can keep their teams. They can take a kid out of college, train them very quickly, and then online keep score of how they're keeping up with their training. That's one approach. I think, you know, as we go forward, you're going to look at gaming technologies. Mm -hmm. Think about how now uh, flight pilots – you know, some of the best Air Force pilots today, as we found, were kids that in high school and college really got into the Microsoft Flight Simulator games, and they came out, and it actually proved that it improved their training. So now we need to be able to inject, can we create virtual environments where people can be under attack? Right? In a safe environment, not on the real networks, and really see the kinds of bad actors and the advanced threats that are there, train against them. Hey, Peter, you actually took a better course of action on that one than Sarah did, but in step four, Jack, I did the best step, and maybe we can mesh those steps together. So there's a lot of things going on, I think, in training that are going to be exciting over the next years as we look at taking cyber ranges, you know, and some of this immersive environments and advanced technologies.
1: So do you need technology to solve this problem? I mean, how big is the technological answer to the people problem? And is it more just to train people unmasked to go into it? Or is it the flip side, you know, making cybersecurity easier for people who are already working in it?
3: No, we firmly believe you can't out hire the talent gap. So, you know, there was one study by, a burning glass that said IT security jobs grew at 3.5 times pure IT jobs last year, in the last five years, 12 times more than all jobs overall. So there's been a need for 12 times more IT security people than overall job creation. So it does require you know, pretty technical talents right? as we go on. But as we can solve that problem, it's through innovation. Innovation created the internet. Innovation, we believe, is going to secure it. And that's where we're focused. Two big areas that we're looking at, I mentioned the managed security services. So how does a company outsource the advanced network hunting capabilities? That's really the high-end experienced people. So they can outsource that. And then you probably are aware of the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge. That's uh, something that Raytheon Uh, actively competed in against 100 teams, and it's all about self-healing networks. What kinds of technologies can we develop that detect malware anomalies on the network and then can automatically patch them in real time to get out there? So this is very early on of automated cyber bots. We think that that will be a force multiplier for the talent shortage. Uh, We actually were in the top seven finalists that are gonna be competing in Las Vegas this year in August. Uh, just prior to DEF CON. Super excited about the capabilities. And, and we're actually looking at how we can improve our managed services, how we can launch that into our Forcepoint products. Where can we really apply these different techniques to bring them to market quickly, so. Cool. Well, thanks great. again for joining us. A Great way to end the conversation. Absolutely, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Thanks again to Lou Hao for a great conversation and to Jack Harrington for joining us this month.
0: Join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer.
1: And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for passcode at This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with the production assistance of Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial,
2: 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.